Hey, Cracked fans. If you're a listener of this podcast, I imagine you feel fairly similar to how I do about the latest clothing options made available across the tennis market. Now, while I won't call out any brand in particular, I will say this. Given the exorbitant nature of the latest designs, feels like you better be pretty freaking good at tennis if you want to wear that sort of clothing on the court. Now, thankfully, we here at Crack Rackets are now able to provide a far more suitable, far more comfortable, and I'm going to be honest, far more stylish option for all of our Crack Rackets fans, courtesy of our friends over at Lucky Racket. Lucky Racket uses some of the best fitting and feeling tees in the world. Their shirts are combed, ring-spun, heirloom cotton, and tri-blend Bella and Canvas. I don't even know what that means, but that sounds spectacular. So, how can you get yourself some Lucky Racket gear? It's simple. Just go to their website, luckyracket.com, that's L-U-C-K-Y-R-A-C-K-E-T.com, and use our promo code CRACK15. If you do, you'll get 15% off all of your purchases. That means 15% off the shirts, 15% off all of the incredible swag offered by our friends. Again, that's luckyracket.com. The promo code is CRACK15. Your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Wednesday, December 15th. Today, we get back to our roots here at Cracked Rackets. And longtime listeners will know a subject that is near and dear to our hearts is all things regarding the ATP Next Gen campaign. Now, of course, the first ATP Next Gen finals were held all the way back in 2017. That happened to be the first year that we hosted a podcast here at Cracked Rackets. And we've covered that event all the way through to this year's event. But of course, this past season, back in January, if you can remember that long ago, we launched a new series called the Next Gen 2.0 series. And that was a look at the next wave of 21 and under superstars emerging on the ATP Tour. Now, of course, flash forward to the end of this season, we have the 2021 Next Gen Finals. And rather than go through every one of our Next Gen 2.0 players, what we decided to do here on this podcast is both recap what we saw at those Next Gen Finals once again, but then also talk about where our eight Next Gen finalists go from here in 2022. And joining me on today's podcast to help me do that is a man who has joined me quite frequently of late on these podcasts to my and the listeners' delight, of course, you may know him best as a writer for our website, crackrackets.com, a writer for Last Word on Tennis, writer for Popcorn Tennis, and of course, writer of the All About Tennis blog. You know him on Twitter as at TennisBlogger1. He'll be firing off those hot takes at 2 p.m. on a Tuesday when you least expect them. Of course, I know him as my friend, David Gertler. David, welcome back to the show. We missed you in these past 24 hours. How are you doing? Uh, you know, I'm doing. I'm doing okay. I'm. I'm excited about this one. I. I and in terms of, uh, yeah, I've been. Uh, I feel like I, it's been a bimodal uh, distribution with me, where I was on a bunch and then it went down, <laughs> and then now another peak. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, no. uh, 
Well, why we keep inviting you back? Yeah, why we keep inviting you back, David, is because you use the word bimodal to describe your appearances. That is right up our alley here. And again, you know, I think why I gravitate to you so frequently for these types of podcasts is because we're the same generation of tennis fan. For our entire lives, in particular on the men's side, it's been the era of the big three. One of Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, dominant at the top of the game. Of course, Andy Murray had his say as well. And yeah, there was Stan, there was Del Pote, there were these guys. But the point being, yes, there were some other breakthroughs here and there, but it's been the era of the big three. That said... It really does feel like this next-gen campaign, I don't want to say it worked from a result standpoint entirely, although we have seen plenty of superstars emerge. But in terms of the cachet, David, in terms of from a marketing standpoint, I really do consider Daniil Medvedev and onwards as the next-gen ATP campaign. Like When we look back now almost five years in the rearview mirror— From a marketing perspective, and we talked about this the last time you were here, some of the things the ATP does right and wrong, I think they nailed this. Like, I love the next-gen finals race, and I think it's something that should stick. Yeah, you know, I I like it to an extent. But again, as we talked about previously, the fast-four format kind of ruins it for me. Uh, <laughs> okay, but let's let's avoid that for a second and just I'm, I'm talking big picture though. The campaign, yes. the idea of highlighting the game's next stars, the idea of bringing eight of them together at the end of the years. So let's just talk broad concept. I love that aspect. The idea of cultivating the game's young stars, the idea of putting them in a place to compete against one another. I mean, we can, I'm going to get into the next gen bump momentarily, but I really do think it's worked. Definitely, and I think that they they almost previewed it to an extent when they did the Challenger Tour finals, but that was everyone. That wasn't the young people specifically. It was just the people done well in the Challenger Tour in a given year. I wish they brought that back too. I but, could not agree more. I wish they did it for the ITF players. I wish they did it for all of the WTA equivalents as well. I would love to see it in college ranks. And they do it at the junior ranks, by the way, the junior ITF Masters champions they have now. There is nothing wrong with a year-end championship. I think we can say firmly here at Cracked Rackets, we are pro-year-end championships, David. Yeah, I do wish that the surface varied. Um, for instance, this year, well, let's look at the next jam. We have uh, Sarandolo. Baez, even uh, Rune, most of the uh, success came on clay. And so, uh, you know, it kind of felt weird to see, you know, Juan Manuel Zarendolo, who had played, I believe, one match off of clay all season in the Wimbledon qualifying, all of a sudden uh, is having to play on indoor hard courts. uh, You know, and I, I guess the counter argument can be made too, but maybe we should be rotating it i mean no i i think the counter argument would be the guy who plays all hard courts playing on clay and i like i could not agree with you more now i think it was fa- fascinating to get to see Surundolo play on an indoor hard court and i think that was more valuable for us fans than watching him play again on clay because we know what he's capable of on the clay courts but to your idea i would love the incorporation of multiple surfaces. I agree. Just, you know, it's a rotating cast every year, and obviously it helps to have a host city to build clout and, you know, pedigree within uh, for the event. But, no, I I have no issues with that. Changing continents, changing surfaces, just incorporating all aspects of the world and all aspects of the game into the year-end championship because – I have, again, no problem with that at all. It's just tough given where it is at the end of the year, I suppose, to find uh, every surface available to you. 
Yeah, and the thing about, you know, Nadal has famously never won the year-end championships. Well, it's played on indoor hardcore. If he was played on clay, he would have, which is just as, which is a more frequent surface than indoor hardcore, he would have probably racked up double digits by now. So, you know, I, I just, I, I that's the one part of the year-end championships beyond for the next gen, the fast forward, that bothers me. And I've got into it with people at times i understand some people like it on indoor hard i don't well what i love about you most david is you agree or your thought process is there are plenty of people who will tell you what is good with something let me tell you what could be better about something that's why i always love working with you for the record but just yeah the little sap there Um, we'll we'll see about that in 30 minutes Yeah, that's a good point. Um, but all right, with all that said, just again, the back history, the next-gen finals, what is this event? Of course, the top eight 21-and-under players throughout the course of the year qualify for this year on championship. And how do you qualify? You accumulate the you know top eight most amount of points. Now, you go back to this year's first event where all of the eight initial qualifiers were ranked inside the top 60. Of course, number four, Alex Virev, qualified for the year-end final, so he opted out of this event in his place came number 63 ranked player by the name of Daniil Medvedev that's where we were back in 2017 but just Crazy. you know again the inaugural group Rublev success Hachinov success Shapovalov success Chorich injured but I think we all agree his career thus far success Jared Donaldson Again, robbed by injuries. That sucks. But he was certainly on the path, had solidified his spot in the top 100. Yeah. Felt, well, he'd solidified. That's not. Yeah. I yeah, mean, he, he was in the top 100. I'm saying if you go to 99% of juniors right now and you can say you get to have the first three pretty years of your pro career of Jared Donaldson, they would all say yes. All of them. Yeah. Unanimously. But, then, but if you look at the field of the next gen. Oh, well, but I agree with you, but that speaks to, again, the pedigree and the quality of this field, that Donaldson's like the the lowest story. Of course, you had Daniil Medvedev. We know what he's gone on to do. Gianluigi Quincy, unfortunately, injuries has robbed him of Uh, much of his career, so he is out. Uh, The alternates were Tiafo and Tsitsipas, by the way. But then the last guy to play it, Hyun Chung, who won the inaugural event, goes on to beat Djokovic, make the semifinals the next year at the Australian Open, was the original next-gen bump. Obviously, we have not seen him play due to the various injuries he has sustained throughout his career. But, I mean, right away we saw the bump from this event. With Chung, did you go back? Did you ever, because there was trending on Twitter lately, that run at the Australian Open that he had, insane. Beating Medvedev and Djokovic, I believe in both in straight sets. Yeah, he was playing outstanding. He was so physically fit, and he made like seven consecutive quarterfinals to start, including Indian Wells to start uh, twenty eighteen, and just was on fire. But literally was so on fire that he burned a blister in his foot, and just from there, yeah, it was. I mean, he was rock solid. Yeah, the serve left a little bit to be desired, but his backhand was special. Just the way he could move his forehand when he was on the run on hard courts. Yeah, you felt like it was a sure thing just with how fit he was. And if you go back. Go read 2018, start of the year. I write an article in January. My players to watch that season for big years were Hyun Chung, Daniil Medvedev, Stefano Tsitsipas, and definitely a bunch of wrong ones that I've blocked out of my memory. I'll um, just but, keep those. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you, again, 2017, fantastic field. Now you look at the next year, 2018, and let's just rapid fire through these a bit quicker now. You look at Zverev, qualifies again, doesn't play. Tsitsipas, into the field. 
Shapovalov qualifies again, doesn't play. But Demonauer, into the field. Tiafo into the field. Fritz, into the field. Rublev, into the field. Halmi Munar, maybe a little early on that. You could argue Halmi Munar at the time, again, we'll, we'll get into, I suppose, pedigree-wise. But, you know, he gets into this event. Hubi Hercots, the last direct qualifier. Italian wildcards, Liam Caruana. But let's focus on the seven who get in on their merit. That's a really good group. Once again, yes. David. And then, you know, 2019, same deal. Tsitsipas, FA, Shapovalov all qualify. None of them play. Instead, you get Demonauer, Tiafo, Umber, Kasper Ruud, Miomir Kesmenovic, Mikhail Emer, Alejandro Davidovich Fokina, and an Italian wildcard by the name of Yannick Sinner. Now, the fact that that group is probably the worst of the fields to that date speaks to how good this event has been throughout the course of the years. But again, I just, I love this event. I, it gives all of these young players something to strive for. It get, And just the quality of tennis we've seen. I don't, I, you may not like the fast four, David, but again, 2018, Tsitsipas wins the event. What does he do? Goes on to the Australian Open uh, semifinal. 2019, Yannick Sinner wins the event. Now, of course, 2020 ruined by the pandemic, but he goes on to make his first Grand Slam quarterfinal. He does all of these different things in 2020 and has obviously followed it up subsequently. Wait a second. Wait a second. Are you saying that the fast four helped to – you don't think that they would have got the same results if it was to six? No, I, I do. That's what I'm saying is the fast four has not diminished them. I'm, I'm not arguing that, that it's helped them. them. Okay, uh, yeah, that's, that's what I'm saying, saying is clearly – no, 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 no. I'm saying clearly that does not impact their development whatsoever. Okay. These guys take the momentum of knowing I'm the top guy in my group and they have catapulted onto successful years. Fair, and that's fair. why I'm pro this event. And that is why we are talking about it here today. So again, that's just the background, talking about the field, what this event has been. Of course, you look at this year's race to the next-gen finals. Worth noting, three of the eight qualifiers ended up opting out of this event. Of course, Yannick Sinner ends up getting to play as an alternate in the year-end finals. You can understand his decision. He's already won this event. He's done this song and dance, of course. Would have been nice for him as an Italian to win that event, but the year-end finals were in Italy as well, and so he had that opportunity. He opts out. It's sad that Felix never played this event. I would have loved to see him play it indoor hardcourt as well. I would have loved to hear you, David, go on and on and on about why a next-gen finals title for him doesn't count as a real title yet in his career. Uh, but obviously we don't that, get— That would coming. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But we don't get that opportunity. He doesn't play this event. Injuries slowing him down. And then Jensen Brooksby, so much tennis on his body. He pulls out as well still. The eight players in this year's field, Alcaraz, Korda, Musetti, Nakashima, Sarundalo, Baez, Rune, uh, and Holger Rune. Now you look at that field, only Sebastian Korda will be ineligible to play this event next year. So this was a young field, A, David, but B, broadly, when you compare this group to the 17, to the 18, to the 19 groups, how do you feel about this group of next geners? Because it does feel like we have finally turned the page and this is the next next gen. This is the 2.0. You know, it's hard to say um, because we have now hindsight of realizing that Medvedev, Hercast, Sinner, et cetera, sure. are all incredible players. Um, I would say it's, but my instinct says it's a little weaker, um, to be honest. Maybe it's just me thinking Juan Manuel Sarandolo off of, off of Clay. The fact that I am maybe a little lower on Sebi Baez's uh, potential than others. Uh, I don't maybe see him as that Schwartzman that 
others do. Um, but in terms of the top, in terms of not, of especially uh, Alcaraz and Corda, Alcaraz is the future of tennis. Um, and Corda, I've been high on him too. He might not be too far behind. So in terms of the top of the field, and then you also have Nakashima, who is really making a name for himself, too. Um, we'll get into all these guys, I'm sure. But um, the top is going to be just as good, if not better. But in terms of the bottom, uh, your Sarundalos and your, you know, if we call Baez the bottom, um, maybe not so much. No, I think that's excellent way of putting it because when I look at the players who compete in this field – I mean, we'll, so we'll talk about Carlos Alcaraz. We'll talk again. We'll get into the depths, but I could see two potential top ten players in this group, and I think that checks out with the other quality of fields. Now, you're right. I think there are more questions about Srundolo, Sebastian Baez, just given their one surface dependent or the, their their dependency on one surface for results in 2021. That guys like. You know, again, past groups, Demonauer and Davidovich Fokina and even that rung had a little bit more experience. Obviously, Rublev, Tiafo, Fritz, you're right, we do have hindsight, but those guys had had success kind of across the board a bit more than these guys who also, you know, particularly at the bottom of this list, again, the Baez is the Sarundalos of the world, although Sarundalo does win an ATP title this year, but it's a lot of challenger-level success. Right. It wasn't the ATP-level success that had propelled some of these players uh, in prior history onto these lists, uh, into this field. That said, let's break down this field. And I think uh-huh. the place we have to start is with Carlos Alcaraz. And, you know, I the listeners already heard me do a big Alcaraz rant when I talked with Jeff Sackman about the statistical takeaways from the 2021 season. And for me, one of them was the year that Carlos Alcaraz had, because when you look overall, what he's been able to do at the ATP level by the age of 18, you know, not even 19 years old yet, it's beneath, it's just beneath Nadal. It's almost on par with Djokovic. It's better than Federer, better than Murray, better than Zverev. And I know it's one year of success, and Jeff did a really good job of pointing out, well, you're talking about the guys who had success and then went on to further success. Who are the guys that have had success and have not gone on to further success? And just what does that ratio look like? And I'll be honest, I haven't had the time to do that yet, David. But when you look at the success for him, 48-19 and over this past season, all of that success, winning the next-gen finals and you know, winning an ATP title in UMAG, making the quarterfinals of the U.S. Open, making the semifinals in Vienna, just the level of play he displayed throughout the course of the season. You look at the Tennis Abstract Stats leaderboard, he ranked fourth in break wow. percentage this year, David. 32.5% break percentage. And what's so, you know, you want to say, well, that includes challenger-level matches. It does. But if you want to filter it out for ATP level, he was still at 30.8%. And He moved out of the challengers pretty quick. Exactly. And just, again, for him to be at 30.8%, that's the elite of the elite. The 30% club, if you're breaking serve 30% of the year or more, you are going to be top five in break percentage each and every season. Now, of course, there are things from a serve perspective that he can get better at. But you just look at the success at this stage of his career. You watch the matches he plays, the physicality he can bring, the variety he can bring, how complete a player he looks at the net. Like the only weakness feels like the serve. And that's not even a weakness. Like everyone's second serve can be better. He's 18 years old. 
It just, I, the word sure thing, you never want to brand on someone. But even if Carlos Alcaraz does not get an ounce better between now and age 33, he already has the outline of a player who will threaten the top 20, who will be in the mix, particularly on clay court events at an elite level. Like, he is that good right now. Yeah. I mean, and when we talk about the serve at the next-gen finals, the serve is actually pretty damn good. He got Compared to his contemporaries, it is good. I agree with you. He got two. He uh, was only broken twice out of the five matches he played. He won over 80% of his service points in three of the five and over 70% in all five of the matches. Um, his serve is rapidly improving, but you're right. It was a weakness. Forehand, the ball just absolutely explodes off his racket. It's just incredible. I can't, you know, I'd, one day I'd, I'd love to see it live because – if it's anything like it is on TV, it's probably one of the more impressive grand strokes that you'll see. Um, backhand is improving. Uh, fitness is not totally there yet, I don't think, but it's you know he's it will be there in a couple of years, I would say. Uh, I think that he's still kind of maybe growing into his body a little bit, um, but just at such a young age, the way that he has performed and the maturity is shown in the court. The, how he's been really mentally tough the mental toughness he's shown has just made me so excited to see where he goes in the future yeah and look he held serve 77.3 percent of the time this season the average number for a top 50 players 81.4 the difference between him and the players beneath him and you look at some of the guys beneath him benoit pair fabio fanini nicolas basilevili and you know dusan laljevic albert ramos vanolas christian garin which i think might be the one that you'd be most concerned about it just feels like he has more weapons he has yeah. more pop he has the ability to construct plus one points be aggressive for him it almost feels like a strength and a repetition thing, and I do agree with you. The second serve numbers, if you look at them, his second serve win percentage increased throughout the course of the season. And, uh-huh. you know, again, for Carlos Alcaraz, you want to look back to his challenger numbers, uh, it, 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 you've just seen growth throughout the course of the year. You know, again, he was at he started at 70% when he was playing in 2019 his first challenger-level matches. At the end of his challenger run, he's at 79%. You look for him, you know, at the start of this season, he's holding serve about 71, 72% of the time. By the end of the year, he's at the 80% mark. And overall, that gets you to 76.3 on the year. But everything got better throughout the course of the season already. And again, structurally, I see no issues. I, I think the depth he can generate on his backhand wing gets better and better. His ability to pull that ball down the his, line is special. His- really underrated too i would sure say. i don't think it's underrated it's properly rated as excellent like the variety he can play with drop shots slice deep i think his willingness as a volleyer is to move forward and be a vol like the obvious comparison is rafael nadal and by the way i don't oh, think i don't any- want to say that no. no there is no shame in comparing the games of carlos alcaraz and rafael nadal now if you're saying carlos alcaraz should be held to the standard of he needs to win 14 or you know 13 French Opens, whatever it is, that's ridiculous. But to say there are parallels in their game, you're lying to yourself if you're trying to say no. The difference being, Carlos Alcaraz is a better volleyer at age 18 than Rafael Nadal was. Now, I'm not saying that means every other component of his game or the, the way he competes that's or any of these other claim. things. No, it's, I don't think it is. Like, 
Carlos Alcaraz is that good at volleying already. And just, you're right, the line drive pace he showed on the indoor hard courts at the next-gen finals when it was against guys who, again, are ranked lower than him, don't have the weapons compared to the guys those top 30, top 50 players have that Alcaraz has been competing against all season, he dominated them. And that was notable. It's just like his weapons were that good. His ability to compete was that good. He was simply that good. Yeah, I mean, you brought up some great points. I, I really, you, I, I don't have much to add because you've really summarized it great. He's someone that in 2020, uh, hard to believe we're heading into 2022, but in 2022, he could easily be a top 10 guy. Yeah, I I could not agree with you more. I think the signs are already there. And again, even if he just becomes an average top 50 server, 80% hold percentage, the return skills aren't going anywhere. He broke serve... 34% of the time at the challenger level. So the numbers were there already. And like that, that immediately translated to a 30% mark in his first ATP season. That bodes well. Like the let math me, says it, uh, the eyes say it as well. Let me ask you this. Me and Gil uh, Gross uh, had a disagreement on Twitter. Do you, uh, something, it was a, maybe a month ago. It's something along the lines of, do you, do you think Alcaraz is going to be better in hard or clay? Oh, has he given you his? He thinks he's going to be best on whim, at on grass take because I that. Think, I thought he said he's going to be. I I definitely said he's going to be best on clay. I think he said he's going to be better on hard. If I'm think, remembering correctly, I think he's going to be really good on both. I think uh, that. I think he's just it's an opportunity cost thing. Well, that's not the right word, but I think his best on clay compared to the field is better than his best on hard courts compared to the field, and so the better results will come on clay courts. If that makes sense. Yes, that does. Yeah, that's interesting. Interesting. <laughs> Very interesting. Where are you on that I'm argument? On your side. I'm on your side with this one. Yeah, uh, and then again to just put a final bow on it, when we look towards 2022, it is such a low hanging fruit. It's like improve the serve you know and by the way the numbers themselves he won 68.1 percent of his first serve points 53.6 percent of his second serve points again structurally those numbers aren't bad it's just about increasing effectiveness with the first serve increasing effectiveness with his plus one ball and he's showed the tools to do all of that what do you want to see from Alcaraz in 2022 what do you expect? Do you see another jump? Do you see him ending the year top 20, 15, 10? What do you think? It's uh, oh man. Yeah, I'm going to look so stupid. I always look stupid when I say stuff like this. Um, but, you know, I think that you mentioned the serve. Something else is he did get in. You know, he had a great run at the U.S. Open. He did get injured. Um, and I want to see him really make – I want to see him go in the run in the best of five format like he did and stay healthy the whole time. Um, and it will come with age. But uh, I think that – you know, going on that deep run and being able to at least attempt to finish the job when you're at full strength will be something that I'm looking for this upcoming year. Um, in terms of ranking projections, um, I won't say I think he has the potential to make top 10. I won't say he will make top 10. Um, I think the realistic goal is top 20. Yeah, I, that would be the next progression for him. And what's crazy is, though, there is some opportunity in his schedule just early on in the season. Like, you know, again, second round loss for him at the Australian Open feels like he can do a bit better than that between that Australian Open and the start of the clay court season. So 
you know, those six weeks between end of February, start of April, Miami, Indian Wells, he has a lot of opportunity to pick up points right there. It was a first-round loss for him in Miami. Uh, you look for him, obviously, he's got the Indian Wells points where he lost first round this year and three to Andy Murray. It's just like there's low-hanging fruit for him to make another jump. And then, you know, round of 32 at Roland Garros. Is there any reason to think he can't surpass that this season? Now, a lot of points to defend at the end of the year, but he's got the whole front half, it feels like, to really load up on ATP events. So I do think that opportunity for growth is there. And yeah, he needs to schedule smart though. I don't think he should be playing, you know, every tournament he can, I think he's going to burn. I don't want him to burn out. Yeah. I, I think he'll be smart. He's got good people in his camp. I think he'll do, he'll do well. My, my last question for you on Alcaraz, is this the only time we see him play the next gen finals? Yes. I would agree with that. I think that would be the safe wager uh, in terms of this question. But all right, with that in mind, that's obviously your winner of the next-gen finals and leader. Hmm. I'll ask it like this because let's have some fun. Sinner or Alcaraz, if you had to pick one, who do you take right now? Oh, man. Leader of the next-gen cohort, who are you taking? Um, Alcaraz. Interessante. I think I'm Team Sinner still, but it's, it's really, so close. really close. Uh, they're both. I think they're both. They've both been added to my locks. For I would be shocked if we leave the 2020s with either of them not having at least one Slam title. I would agree with that. Yeah. All right. Well, with that said, then. Oh, sorry. Do you have something else? No, I was just saying I, I was happy that we get to agree. Uh, yeah, no, always a good thing. Well, then, with that said, uh, let's move on to our next player, and that, of course, is the finalist at these next-gen finals, and that's Sebastian Corda, who, look, we talked about it when we went through our top 10 American lists. I thought I underrated him at first. He had a really good season, and I know we talked about him extensively there, so we can just do the summary version of this, but you look for Sebastian Corda overall in the year, obviously gets his first ATP title uh, at, or, uh, at the uh, clay court portion of the season in Parma. There it is. He you know makes the final right out the bat in Del Rey and you know, wasn't able to play the Australian Open, but ends up winning a challenger title during that stretch of time, makes a quarterfinal in Miami and you know down the home stretch again finals at the next gen finals beats Kara 7 Chilich to make a round of 16 in Paris round of 16 in Wimbledon in a match he probably should have beaten Karen Hatch not that he lost 10-8 in the fifth set you know you look for Sebastian Corda he's on the precipice of the top 30 club one of 13 guys who are top 30 in both hold percentage and break percentage you look at his size the weapons he has feels like his his game his physical profile tailor-made for this modern era your thoughts on Sebastian Corda again this one if you want to hear the full Corda thoughts go to the podcast David and I did breaking down our top 10 American men's seasons of 2021 but quick summary here your thoughts on Corda yeah Corda really broke through quickly at that Delray event he burst through the gates of the season very fast I mean the backhand I think is special it cuts through the court he he can really control the baseline well his serve is improved this season and it's a big threat at the next-gen finals. He had a couple matches where he won 90% of his first serves. Um, and it's just – it's a it's a weapon, whereas maybe in 2020 it wasn't as much – or yeah, we're still in 2021. In 2020 it wasn't much of a we- as much of a weapon. Um, although he really started to come up to the scene with that French Open uh, last year where he made the round of 16. Um, and he's really blossomed from there. 
he made the round of 16 at the French Open, right? 2020? Yeah, when he lost to Nadal. Yeah, but he beat Karatsev. That was the, that was the big— He also uh, beat my guy Pedro Martinez. Right. Which um, is a good win on clay. Yeah, no, Martinez is another one of those guys who we don't talk about much, but has had a great season. But yeah, with Corda, um, yeah, he's we talked about it a lot last week, but he's a great play. He's a great up and coming player, and I think he has a high ceiling. I really do. I, I think he. I don't. I'm not saying he will reach top ten, but like Alcaraz, I think he has top ten potential. Yeah, no, they're. I think they're both very, very good and. Yeah, again, for Sebastian Corda, you look at the numbers, again, 81.1% hold percentage. I believe that number's 31st. You look at the break percentage, 24.1%. That's particularly encouraging. That is a top 20 number. And just when he's connecting on his backhand, down the line, I think you think about it, Djokovic, Zverev, you know, Medvedev, Corda. Like that is how good yeah. his backhand can be in. I think he gets more and more explosive with the forehand. It was interesting to see at the next-gen finals against Nakashima and against Gaston. Look, he had the big boy weapons. He was the one who could make you know win points short and make things easy. He went over 90% of his first serve points twice against Baez and Musetti in these next-gen finals. That's elite. And again, that's not the yeah. level of competition he'll be facing week in, week out. But that flashes that as he grows accustomed to levels of competition, he can develop elite weapons. Now, I do think you have to worry about his health. But when you look for him in 2022, David, what do you want to see growth in? What do you expect from him? Um, I think at times he can kind of uh, bail out on rallies maybe a little quicker than I would like. I'd like him to kind of maybe hang in there a little longer um, in the – longer rallies i think realistically i think he should be a solid top 20 next year um i would also like but i'd also like to see him improve his i think that his transition game up to the neck could use a little more improvement as well um i think that he has a type of grand strokes where he can really put players on the defensive and i think at times there are opportunities for him to move into the net maybe a little more often than he does yeah I think all of those things are fair. He's definitely a comfortable volleyer. I actually do like his feel around the court, David. I do think – yeah, and his willingness to move forward. And I think he can knife a backhand slice and drive it because of his size and strength in ways just not a lot of guys can. And I do think that – you know, do you know what I mean? The drive yeah. on his slice. Yeah, it's just – I like those aspects. I think the skills are there, but you're right. It's better. You you said it perfectly. The way he sometimes bails out of rallies, and I to me that's just a physicality thing. And I think that's another reason why you think so highly of his floor. He can play the tennis. It's can he withstand the rallies, withstand the race, match that physicality. We I feel like that physicality is what abandoned him at the end of Wimbledon, and it felt like that Wimbledon match just drained so much out of him over the next couple of weeks on tour. I do, again, when you look towards 2022, I would like to see him more than anything else sustain a top 50 ranking. I don't need to see him make a top 20 jump next year. I just want to see him healthy. If he can replicate this season, this was a really good year, David. 36-20, and 20, win another ATP title, make another Grand Slam round of 16. Now you look for him from a points perspective in the points race. It was a top 35 season, not the number 42 ranking I think that he's at right now. Um I like I think if he sustains this for another year he will enter the top 35 and so I suppose that's my expectation. I would just like to see him do this again. 
yeah, I think I'd like to see him win another title next year. I think it's very possible. I think he should. I think on hardcore, you know, I was surprised his first title came on clay because I see him as more of a hardcore guy. Um, but yeah, no, I think winning another title and moving, maybe being seated at slams by the U.S. Open, that's something that uh, is something realistic that he can go for. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, all right. With that said, now we get into the interesting category because I think everyone knows what we feel about Alcaraz. I think everyone knows what we feel about Sebastian Corda, but let's let's mix things up now. I want to go to one of the more fascinating seasons of 2021, and that's Lorenzo Musetti. I have Mm -hmm. no idea what to make of Lorenzo Musetti after his past 15 months on tour. And I do think it's worthwhile to go all the way back to 2020. And really, you know, the start of that restart. Semifinals for him at the Challenger in three. Who does he lose to in three sets? A young man by the name of Carlos Alcaraz. He then goes quarterfinals of another Challenger, qualifies in Rome, beats Stan Wawrinka, beats Kei Nishikori before bowing out to Dom Kopfer in the round of 16. After that, beats Tiafo, beats Seppi, beats Harris, wins the challenger in Forley. He goes to Sardinia at the end of the year, makes a semifinal as well. Has all of this momentum on his side to start the 2021 season where, look, things go his way to begin the year. Makes another challenger final in Antalya to back up all of that success on the clay. Makes another challenger final on the indoor hard courts of Biela as well. And then, you know, he's not playing Australian Open qualifying, but he qualifies in Acapulco. Makes a semifinal run there. Makes a round of 32 in Miami. Positions himself seemingly beautiful for the clay court season where semifinal in Lyon and, you know, round of 16 Roland Garros where he's up two sets to love on Novak Djokovic. But after that, David, after that, I don't know what to make of Lorenzo Musetti's season. And you look for Musetti following that Roland Garros again, all the way for him through the end of the year. I believe overall he goes 5-15 and 15 down the home stretch of the season. And you look uh, for him— only got four wins okay four and 15 that works for me as well in the main draw he did win a couple yeah, so there might be a qualifying. Yeah, there's a Paris qualifying win snuck in there as well excuse me and so all that is to say I don't know what to make of him. Like, you look for him at the rankings. Obviously, for him to not even be 20 years old and to be number 59 in the rankings, you take that. And you look for him, again, in terms of youngest players in the top 100 right now. Carlos Alcaraz is the youngest. After that, it's Lorenzo Musetti. Like, that, he's the second youngest player in the top 100. And you look at the shot making, the backhand, the athleticism, what he's able to do on the run. There is a lot to like about Lorenzo Musetti's game. But again, I think the results come on clay. A lot of them have. I agree with you. B, he's a guy who it feels like he can do plan B. He can do plan C. He can do plan D. But what does the best version of Lorenzo Musetti look like? How does he make things a little bit easier for himself? Clearly, the physicality, the speed, the shot making, that's why he was a world-class junior. You can't do that as a top 50 pro. How does he take that bridge what are your takeaways from his season? I my takeaways from his season are we. I think that he has. I think he's going to be a player in the future that we see flashes of greatness for, but he never really puts it together. I think part of his problem is his core positioning. A little too often, he can get um, 
he can kind of get too comfortable standing behind, way behind the baseline and just trying to out-rally players as opposed to standing up on the baseline and trying to take hold of the point and, and rip his shots more. I think also he maybe uh, it's a detriment how many weapons he has in terms of his variety. And he has so many droppers and slices and angles and different shots at his disposal. Maybe at times it feels like he he doesn't know what the right shot is and because he just has too many to think of. I, I think that also his game does definitely doesn't suit hardcore very well. He has these long elongated uh, ground stroke that, you know, you can rush him pretty, uh, you rush him uh, and he can crumble a little bit and he just does not look comfortable at all. When I think he doesn't look comfortable, I think back to Winston-Salem when he lost to a cramping Federico Correa in the, in the middle of the afternoon and a uh, August hot August day in North Carolina and it just uh, really was like almost like a microcosm of the second half of the season where he just was totally uncomfortable he did not know how to play on hard courts and he really um, he struggled big time in lots of errors Acapulco is a very outlier it's, it was so slow it was high bouncing it played like a clay court yeah, so that's that's I guess my thoughts in terms of, you know, it didn't. Yeah, you know, it was weird though when I saw he was in the next gen field. I was like, wait a second, yeah, maybe re my recency bias kicked in. I'm like, he said he's been pretty heavy making, and I, then you think back to the pre Djokovic loss, and it's like, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, no, I mean, look, he doesn't have the overwhelming weapon, right? He's got the speed, like he's got the physicality, he's got the the creativity and the improv uh, improvisational skills to be a top 100 player. When things break down, that's when Lorenzo Musetti looks his best. The problem is when you're doing that, when you're playing at the behest of or at the will of these top 100 players and the weapons that they possess, just how feasible is it for you to be a top 20 guy, to be a top 50 guy? Like, would you rather have the profile? Oh, I'm trying to think of like a young big server who just kind of you feel like, okay, he's going to. I mean, an Ugo Umber at times. Like, would you rather have the skill set of an Ugo Umber who's playing, you know, who's holding serve so for? I mean, Riley Opelka is probably a more is too extreme of a version. But okay. like, okay, no, no, no. Here it is. Would you rather have the game of Taylor Fritz or the athleticism of Lorenzo Musetti? And which of those two things is more consequential to success in Fritz. modern tennis? And, well, we say Fritz now with hindsight, right, because we've seen that success. Yeah. But Fritz has the weapons. To me, it's like you can always teach someone to an extent to become a better athlete. Everyone will get stronger. Everyone will get faster with more repetitions, assuming they stay healthy. You right. can't teach a contact pick uh, point like Fritz has on the serve, on the ground strokes. You can't teach that sort of natural firepower. And why yeah. I think Lorenzo Musetti, you'd be encouraged by him is he has that firepower. When he's connecting on that backhand, when he's playing on his front foot, showing off his speed, he can do special things. And that's why I think – I don't that's know why I – Getting that mindset of getting up on the baseline and cracking that well, back. You, you reference – his core positioning is horrible. Like it's just yeah. atrocious. We get He's playing 12 feet behind the baseline, and it's really cool, and it's really fun to watch. But there's some Tommy Paul of Lorenzo Musetti, like early Tommy Paul, where you're just like, all right, you can do a million things, but do the thing that helps you to win. Like I don't need to see you on tennis TV shot of the day. I need to see you in the top 40, 
And like that's the problem with Musetti is it feels like sometimes he's more for the highlight reel than he is for the result. Yeah, and he did have some personal problems this year sure. that he talked about. But, you know, everyone has personal problems. Yeah, everyone has things going on in their lives outside the courts. So I don't know how much of an excuse that is. But, yeah, and yeah, with Musetti, you're right. He does have the firepower, but he doesn't have the right mindset. And I think some, I think sometimes it also what happens with some of these players too is it works for something works for a short short period of time, but it's not sustainable. But because it worked, they it, players hesitate to change from that. And Musetti's you know twelve feet behind the baseline did work for the first you know few months of the season. Well, it worked uh, at the challenger level because people don't have big enough weapons to to do as much consistent damage to him. And, like, right. you can see the big thing for him, A, the hold percentage drops by 8% from last season to this season. B, the break percentage dropped by 3%. That, and that's entirely— uh, Sorted by level, though, because he probably played more— ATP. Well, no, of course, some of that is ATP related. But what I'm saying is, as the level of competition in- increased, you're, you're proving my point for me. As the level of competition increased, the weapons did not stand up. Right. The core yeah. positioning did not stand up. So clearly, some sort of adjustment has to be made. Now, again, it feels like he has the tools. Fantastic touch, fantastic slice. I would say, best one handed backhand since Richard Gasquet. It's that pretty. Uh, oh, I don't it, know about oh, that. Oh, he has my favorite one-handed backhand, I think, on tour. Just the strength he's able to show, how he's not consistently overwhelmed on that side. I think he can hit the block slice return on the backhand wing as well, but he's comfortable hitting through it also. Now, it's best on a slow surface. I agree with you, and the backswing can get a little bit big, and like any one-hander, overwhelmed by elite pace. But I like what he's able to do. It's just, again— do it all six feet closer to the baseline. And that's why I think there is I, – I, while the numbers – you know, it would be nice if there was like a fundamental or a structural flaw where you could be like, oh, it's just improve this. It's easy. It's not going to be that simple for Musetti. To your point, I think it's a mindset shift more than anything else. But do you think the skills are there? Because I do think he should be better on hard courts than he is. But do you think his serve is good enough? I don't think his serve is good enough either. Ugh. It's a good question. I don't know. It's it's tough. I mean, it's not huge pop, but he places the ball so well. Like I just feel like he could be an excellent spot plus one server where it's just like slice you out wide, kick you out wide, go plus one to the open space. Like I could see that he has the skills to develop that pattern. I think on clay it's fine, but I just think on hard courts, again, we're going to be talking about this a lot. I'm sure it was around below too and probably bias. The bias is better than I thought it'd be at the next-gen finals. But yeah, on clay it's fine, but on hard courts I just can be exposed um, a little bit. In terms of the spot servers, Nakashima I think is one of the better spot servers among the next-gens that we have. Um, He doesn't serve that big, but he hits his spots so well. We'll talk him, I'm sure, coming up soon. Well, yeah, no, we've got him next on the list. So with that in mind, give me what you want to see from Musetti before we move on to Nakashima. Um, what, what, my, like my ranking prediction? Yeah, just what, what do you want him to improve? Okay. What, it's second serve? Second serve, I want him to improve his court positioning. Those are the yeah. two things. And then, we'll, then we can take it from there, right? Yeah. Get, fix those and then take it from there. I think the swerve or the result-wise, uh, much like Korda, stay top 60. Like, even if he doesn't make a big jump next season, there are a lot of points to defend at the challenger level right away. And it's just, if he can stay top 60, that means 
he started having more success at the ATP level. That means it's not first-round losses. It's not qualifying losses. He's making, you know, round of 16s or quarterfinals at the 250 level, if not better. I think that's very obtainable for Lorenzo Musetti, and that would be a step in the right, the right direction. Again, just a level of consistency for him moving forward. Of course, speaking of consistency, we get to Brandon Nakashima. And this is another guy we did a full Next Gen 2.0 series on. We talked about so frequently throughout the course of the year. We talked about him in our top 10 list. So much like Korda, we can rapid fire through this one. But David, give me your thoughts on Nakashima's season, where he goes from here. Yeah, Nakashima hits a... I love Nakashima on grass, by the way. I think he's going to be a really good grass court player. And I think that because I think he hits the ball pretty damn flat. And Mm -hmm. he does. He hits the ball flat, but he hits with good precision, too. Deep in the court, that can, I, 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 this is probably my most overused phrase, that controlled aggression, um, which is normally, you know, the top spin bringing the ball back down to the court. But Nakashima, somehow, he's not an error machine at all. He does a great job of keeping the ball in the court. He does a great job of, key, of um, hitting the ball deep. He hits his spots on his serve. He, he really has done, from the pandemic uh, 2020 hiatus to now, his net play in his transition game have done have been like the, uh, we talked about that by mobile modal distribution he's on top of that uh he's on top of that graph uh he's done a great job at improving his net game and his transit transition game and i also think and i think that's partially because he's been working with he worked at least in the past with that uh, cash um so um, I really have been impressed with him. You know, he's done everything that I expected him to be this season. He has gotten so much better as a volleyer, David. And he's just like, it's it's so funny because I think we saw that same desire from Taylor Fritz who would force his way forward perhaps in moments when he didn't absolutely need to but just wanted to become a more comfortable volleyer early in his career. Brandon has done a very similar thing here this season and it's worked. Like, he is now a good volleyer. He knows where to go. He knows he's going to make that first volley 90% of the time, which is half the battle, and he's going to drive it well enough to just make a, ask a really tough question of opponents on that first pass. And, yeah, to your point, Brandon hits his spots so well in that backhand, so measured, down the line, cross-court, short angle, with pace. I think the forehand can still be overwhelmed by elite pace, but if you give him time, he's able to move that ball so well. I think, you know, again, the big numbers for him, David— 2019, he turns pro after coming out of Virginia, goes 18-9 and down the home stretch of that season and obviously makes a quarterfinal in Tiburon, semifinal in Fairfield, semifinal in Charlottesville. Last year for him, it was the, you know, for him to make semifinals of the Indian Wells Challenger and then win a Challenger in Orlando to end the season 28-14 and overall. This year, you know, wins a Challenger to start his year after making a semifinal as well and qualifies in Acapulco and, you know, makes the decision to put himself in difficult positions and goes and plays clay court challengers to just get the repetitions yeah, that he needs. That was so cool that he like said, I'm going to figure that out and I'm going to figure out how to play on clay. You know, similar to the net game. He, he saw a problem and he has worked his off to get a solution, you know? No, absolutely. And then again, qualifies at Wimbledon, which is a win for Brandon in his young career. And then obviously back-to-back finals, Los Cabos, Atlanta. That's the breakthrough he was looking for. And, you know, quarterfinals Antwerp, another challenger final at the start end of the season before making these next-gen semifinals. He just, he got better. 
at the point uh, and in everything he did uh, throughout the course of this season. And again, you look at the live uh, at not the live rankings, excuse me, but the points race for Brandon here this season. He played far above where his ranking is at. And you look for Brandon right now; he is number sixty-eight uh, in the world to end this season. Has put himself in a position to pretty much craft the schedule that he wants to play next year. But you look for him uh, in the points race, and I mean, yeah. Brandon was higher than that. You look for him overall, I believe we have him, yeah, 56th, I want to say here, in the points race. was an incredible season for Nakashima and just, again. How about the way he returned is near serve? I mean, well, just in general, you look at the numbers, and he's not a top 50 player, but an 84.1% per, uh, percent hold percentage, that number would be top 25. A 24.6% break percentage, that number would be top 25. Now, again, you have to adjust for the level of competition, and there was plenty of challenger action throughout the course of the year. He won a couple, yeah. Yeah, for Brandon, but uh, again, you look at what he did. Excuse me, Brandon Nakashima on the year in terms of the points race. Let's see here. Did we get this right? Nakashima, come on now. He's 57th overall in the points race this season. So, yeah, it was even higher than his ranking. And, you know, again, when you would, I just, there's, what's the weakness? I don't see it. And when you're saying, well, we need him to maximize his strengths more in 2022, you would like every player to maximize their strengths more. So I, I just view next year, crack the top 50, stay there. If he replicates his season from this year, he should do just that. I'd like to see him snag a title. Yeah, he's been he was in a couple finals. Um I think that next year getting that first title at a two fifty on a hard court, I feel like that's very re- that's very realistic. Um now you know, it's not to maybe expected like I expect FAA now for you know, this season to have won a title, but uh I think that it's definitely a very achievable goal. Yeah. All right, fair. Well, with that said, let's move on to our next player. Sebastian Baez is where I want to go next. And you look for the young Argentinian who, you know, was a former top-ranked junior in the world and cracks the top 100 for the first time at the end of this season, currently ranked number 99 right now, 56-16 and overall, David, in 2021. Now, all, I believe, but I want to say, let's see, he played, yeah, seven matches on hard court, no matches, uh, one match on a grass court. So you look for him overall, 72 matches, 64 of them were on clay courts this year. But you look at the success he had in those clay court matches. Yeah, this is a guy who wins six challengers throughout the course of this season, makes nine total finals as well. And just, I mean, when you're winning 78% of your matches, I don't care what level it's at, you are having success. Now, here's the big number. He broke serve this season, David, 42.3% of the time. Let me say that again. He broke serve 42.3% of the time. We have to give a caveat there. We have to have a caveat. One of these days, David, you're going to let me finish a stat and get to these caveats because I promise I'm getting there. You're going to say, okay, let's see if you say the caveat. It was at the challenger level. It was on clay courts. Of course, that caveat has to be said, but I don't care. If you do okay. something that elite at that level, that's an outlier. Like, prime Novak Djokovic did not break serve 42% of the time. Prime Rafael Nadal did not break serve 42% of the time. And, of course, that number is going to go down as he faces the bigger serves on the quicker surfaces at the higher levels of the ATP. But that is a mastery of return of serve at the challenger level. And watching him play at the next-gen finals— 
I thought the aggression he showed, his ability to take that order early and on the ball early and on the rise, and just the aggressive skill set. I think he likes moving forward and going to the net, David. I just, I really love Sebastian Baez's game, and I don't want him to get typecast as the next Schwartzman because I think there's an aggression that he plays with. It's legit. Like, if you were to cross Ricardus Barrancas with Diego Schwartzman, you would get Sebastian Baez. And that means you get some of the downside of Barrancas, but you get some of the fluidity of Schwartzman as well. Like, there's a top 50 player here, no doubt. Yeah, I mean, I well, I, I wouldn't say no doubt, but top 50. But you know what? He's he The proof is in the pudding, and, yeah. he, has, and he has won six challengers. No uh, poor Greek sport, like, is putting Bonzi and Baez to shame, who had historical seasons, and Greek sport's like, yeah, but I'm going to go win, you know, eight. Yeah, Baez is such a smart player, such a solid baseliner. He's not, you know, what, the only, he's, I, I think he's different than Schwartzman, the fact that I kind of like his forehand a little more than his backhand there's times when his forehand can get a little erratic but in general he's a very solid baseliner he can ramp up the pace he his tennis iq's through the roof he knows when to come to the net he knows when when to hit that variety shot um i think that there's really no glaring holes in his game i think his serve can definitely get a little better um and I'd like to see him on more in hard courts. Although, you know, he did go 2-1 and one in the next-gen and make the semifinals. That was probably the biggest surprise for me of the next-gen finals was how he went on his mini-run. Um, oh, what, I that- loved his fight at the end, whether it was, again, the four sets over Musetti and the three sets over Gaston. It just felt like a business trip for him, right? <laughs> like, it just felt like some of the other guys, they were hugging, they were smiling, you know, Gaston, Musetti playing to the crowd— it felt like in those first two matches, until Sebastian Baez won the final point, I'm not saying he never smiled, but he was there to do business. And just mm-hmm. there is that sort of skew attitude to him. I love it. Like, I absolutely love it, David. Yeah, and I think he went right back down to South America afterwards. And, and played. And what an, exactly. Like, what a baller. Yeah. It's just you – you can't teach that type of work ethic. Now, whether or not it was smart for him to push himself that hard, that's, that's you know, remains to be seen. And I guess we'll find that out, you know, if he comes out looking burnt out next year. I don't think he will. I'm, I, I, yeah, I mean, you summed it up great. There's, he really has had a season that I can ne- – you know, I thought he might win a challenger or two this year. Six? No, I had no idea this was coming. Yeah, no, and um, I, the cr- – no, the crazy thing is just, again, in his career, 142 and 59. That's a 70% win percentage across levels. That's obviously impressive. Now, he's 15 and 8 in his career in hard court matches. You want to hear something interesting, though? The eight losses Alcaraz, Corda, Eubank 7 6 in the third at this year's U.S. Open. Nuno Borges 6-2 in the third in Monastere last year. He lost to Lucas Caterina twice. Raul Brancaccio won 6-3 in the third. And then when he was 17 years old, he lost to, you know, uh, Mick Lescure 7-5, 7-6. We can throw that one out the window. But again, we don't have a big sample size of pro circuit matches. The difference being now, he's top 100. Guess who we'll see in Australia, David? Sebastian Baez. Guess who we're going to probably see? I mean, he'll play the South American swing, but do we see him pop up if things go well for Indian Wells qualifying, for Miami qualifying? Absolutely, we hope. That said, 
there are a lot of points for Baez to defend throughout the course of the year. And, you know, it starts right away. He won his first challenger title in February. He had two by yeah, he won he had two by the end of March, like, you know, three I believe four by the end of May. Oh man, like there's there's no doubt he's gonna have to have success right away. But he had there was a ton of success for him throughout this season. And again, you look at the numbers, forty two point three percent break percentage, that's not going to last on a faster surface. No doubt about that. Right. But the return skills are there. I think his game does translate to faster courts. Now, 74.3% hold percentage, that's concern. The number they have for him right now in his career on hard courts is 55.3%. Now, there's no way his hold percentage is that low. Like, that's just – there's no way that's actually the number because that means he's getting broken every other game on hard courts, and I just don't believe that. Um, Although his break percentage on hard courts is 56.8%. That's what I'm saying. Those numbers are just wrong. These are the ones. Yeah. yeah, something's just funky about that. Point being, I don't know, I watched him serve on those indoor hard courts. Like, you look for the results for him, and overall, against Lorenzo Musetti, he doesn't face a break point. Against Gaston, one of three on break points. Now, Corda Alcaraz, they, uh, or excuse me, you know, they uh, force eight and nine break points, respectively. They had a little bit more success. Uh-huh. But I think Bias's game transitions to a hard court or to a faster surface. That's obviously the biggest question heading into 2022. What do you expect? What do I? Well, I expect him to. I expect him to be in a clay court ATP final at some point. Um, I, I, you know, it's hard to say. The sample size is so small on hard court. So I really, you know, I can't. You know, I don't want to take a couple, a few fast sport matches and start drawing, you know, drawing huge conclusions from you them. You can say extrapolate. I was ready for you. Yeah, I was. I was. Uh, I, I heard was it. Gonna, I heard it sneaking I, out. I going, but, but then I was thinking, I'm, t- I'm tired of saying the statistics words, so I'm going <laughs> to uh, stick with uh, whatever I said. But yeah, so you know, I, I don't want to extrapolate any big conclusions based on a fast sport. You know, end of season doesn't even count in the rankings, but you know it. It was encouraging, and I think that we're going to learn a lot more in the first few months of 2021. Like you said, how does he do if he plays Indian Wells qualifying, Miami qualifying? Is he out of his league, or can he hang hang on hard? How does he do in the Golden Swing this year? There, I expect him in the Golden Swing. You know to. You know, Francisco Sarandolo made a final last year. Juan Manuel won one. You know, that's kind of the bar has been set. Um, Who ends the year ranked higher, Musetti or Baez? Musetti. I'll go Baez. I really like his – I like his positioning that much better. Like I think both guys have the clay court skills. I just think Sebastian Baez is more comfortable being closer to the baseline at this point. Now I think the physical profile for Musetti gives him the edge long term. But I am very much on the Sebastian Baez train, if you can't tell. So he is a guy I think could be— You're among many, and I like him too. I don't mean to be negative. Um, No, I think he could be a breakout star of 2022 if he wasn't already this— You know, for the hard—for us, he was a breakout star this year. For the casuals, for the ATP-level fans, I think he makes a big run. I think he could— I think he's more likely to win a South American clay court title than not in 2022 during that stretch. Oh That's God. the take. There's your spice. Wow. Uh, yeah. So, 
Because it will have to contact the what the cold takes exposed or bad takes. Oh, exposed. I already got that. I already got hot takes exposed or, or yeah, whatever bad takes exposed once this year. I'm not ready for it. Oh, you're time. on. You were on it once. Oh, I got it for the first time this year. And you know what? I have a gripe to pick because I tweeted at the end of 2020 when Djokovic didn't play the best year-end finals. I was like, I don't know how much more than 20 he's going to get because if he drops off physically, his game is so predicated on physicality, you know, what does that game look like? Uh-huh. And, of course, he then goes on to win the next three Grand Slams that are played. Um, and right before, after he won the Zverev match, Old Takes Exposed retweeted that tweet. But then he lost to Medvedev. So it's like, do I get to expose Old Takes Exposed for prematurely exposing me? Because, yeah. like, that was a yeah. premature exposition. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. Is there, is there an account, Old Takes Exposed Exposed? That's what I'm saying. Old, exposing Old Takes Exposed. Like, you've been exposed, Old Takes. Um, and anyways, any listeners who feel vehemently on my cause, you know where to find them on Twitter. But all right. With that yeah, said, spamming their comments with uh, pro Alex Gruskin. Yeah, stuff. just like except for them, they'll go after me. I'm sure there are some worse ones in the queue. <laughs> um, all right. With that said, home stretch here now, uh, and some of these names we'll go through a little bit quicker than these previous ones. Juan Manuel Serendolo. Now you've talked about him. I think every pod we've done. I know that's your I, guy. Probably like half my articles. So yeah. yeah I feel like so I'm gonna give you the floor here. His 2021, your takeaways, where he goes from here. You are the authority on all things Serendolo. Give me the case. I have watched the. I, I, well, first off, I love watching him play. I'll start with his game style. He is a lefty, very weak serve, but at the same time, he makes it work somehow, especially on. Well, first off, on, he plays almost exclusively on clay. In 2021, he went 53 and 22 on clay. Um, and he went zero and one on grass. And then the next gen finals was his only, uh, hardcore tournament. So very clay, but on clay, his serve works. He's able to spin it out wide and then hit to the open court. He's able to defend it so well. He knows how to, he knows where to position himself right after the serve. So that if someone blasts a return winner, he's right there and return a big return. He's right there. His anticipation is unbelievable. Um, his spins, you know, the different varieties and shots, like very almost Brooksby-like in terms of, you know, that drop shot out of nowhere, his touch, his volleys, his lobs, his ability to cover the court is just reminds me of Brooksby in that way. Um, and his grit and his ability also to, we saw his mental toughness this year was fantastic in that uh, final against Ramos. He didn't blink. Um, in Cordoba in, for his ATP final. I saw him the first time ever um, in Montevideo in, I think, 2019, where he made the semifinals uh, before. I think he lost to Del Bonis. Um, and I said, you know, his passing shots. I said, this, he had these unbelievable passing shots. This guy is special. Um, and I still believe that. I don't know if he has a ceiling. Like a, He definitely does not have a ceiling because of the limitations in his power and his ability to play on hard and grass that maybe he doesn't have a scene like Alcaraz or Corda, but he's a fun player to watch and he's going to have a lot of clay court success in the years to come. It's so interesting watching him again, uh, having watched him compete at the next gen finals, because you could tell again that the lack of indoor hard court reps were quite evident. And yeah, he was able to steal sets in all three of the matches he played, David, but we can't criticize the court positioning of Lorenzo Musetti and 
not criticize the yeah. court positioning of Juan Manuel Serendova, who no doubt has the physicality to go corner to corner to corner to corner. He does have that craft, that creativity to sneak a ball by you, and he's going to lull you into hitting a lazy approach shot so that he can laser a passing shot behind uh, past you. And you can't give him two looks at passing shots, otherwise he will hit one of them for a winner. The lobs, the craft, I think when he does move forward, he actually has some success. When he does that, yeah. I think he is an... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, he has that touch, I'm saying, at the net. Yeah, and he's an able volleyer. There's no doubt about that. And it's just, again, though, his serve was exposed, like, at the next-gen finals. There's no doubt about it. You look at it in his three matches against Holger Rune, 11 of 14 on breakpoint save, but he faced 14. Against Nakashima, he faced 11. Against Alcaraz, he faced five, but he, you know, loses three of those five breakpoints. I mean, he got worked. On the faster surfaces. There's no doubt mm-hmm. about that. And you just need to see more of him. You look for him, hold percentage overall, 69.2% last season. That's on clay courts, David. That's not good. Like, that, um, it's just it, I don't. I, it's just not going to work. Like, the 36.3 break percent, I agree. He's got that feel. He's an outstanding tennis player. But finding quick points and easy points and just making life a little bit more difficult easy for yourself that's the difference between the guys in the top 20 and the guys in the top 50 and 70 and 100 and i think Serendolo's too scrappy too good of an athlete just again too yeah, durable well i think he's yeah. going to be a top 100 player but does he have the weapons he, to go further the than top. the top he's 93 right no, no no i'm saying he's going to continue to be oh, okay, a top yeah. 100 player but does he have the skill set, the weapons, to crack the top 50, to crack the top 30? Right now, I can't say the answer is yes because I don't know what he does to make life easy enough for himself. You're right, and he does. His court, his, he's improved in that sense um, compared to maybe where he was right after Cordoba. But, um, yeah, no, he definitely needs to move up further in the court. He, you know, He's doing a better job of being aggressive with the, especially the forehand, and but he's still not where he needs to be to – do well off of uh clay um so you're totally right in that sense um he has a level of grace in the level of smoothness in terms of his movement and his physicality where i don't worry about his injury history i mean his injuries as much as i do with brooksby you know um and so i i don't you know, he doesn't have. I think he'll be fine in that sense, but in terms of his ability to beat big ball strikers on faster surfaces, there is plenty of work to be done. Yeah, and so that's the thing to see for him moving forward. Is again, how does he develop those weapons, make life just a little bit easier for himself moving forward? Because again, as a competitor, which is a weapon in itself, and again, his fitness, his stamina, his feel. You can't teach those things, and he has them. In spades, you could tell he was the younger brother running corner to corner as Francisco was pounding forehand, 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 and just that feel is evident, and it works at this level. And so it will be fascinating to see where he goes in 2022. Hugo Gaston, guy's got a ton of weapons. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, lefty, crafty, slice, fascinating obviously makes the run to the Paris quarterfinals at the end of the season to push to that new career high uh, of number 66 ends the year at 67 44 and 30 David overall on the year that includes run to a bunch of different challenger finals throughout the course of the season now I don't believe he actually ended up winning a challenger he never did I think he was 0 for 4 yeah but 
I mean, again, another guy, 33.2 break percentage. You love to see that. Does he have a serve big enough, though, to get the job done? 70.4% hold percentage. Now, he beats Rindernesh, he beats Musetti, beats Anderson, beats Carreno Busta at the Paris Masters. But he should have never won that Carlos Alcaraz match. Let's be honest. He should have never probably won uh, a couple of those matches that he got through and just that he was able to do it speaks to him as a competitor. And he played two really fun five-set matches at the next-gen finals. But, like, I don't know. I have no idea what to do. It's just like someone whose game is so dependent on that variety, on the slice. A guy mm-hmm. who, again, has the speed and the touch but just a really difficult time making points easy for himself. Sure, top 100, no problem. Top 50, that's where life gets a little tougher. That's a theme, right? We're saying make life tough on himself. Well, we said this at the beginning. Does this group have the top-end talent? Alcaraz, Corda, absolutely. Does this group have the depth of those previous groups? For various reasons, whether it's a size deficit, a a power deficit, some of these, this is why we said that at the beginning, right? Right. And I would say... With Gaston, it be you said it well in terms of he relies so much on that variety. Well, your arm gets a little tight in finals, right? Um, and so that probably you know he's been he was terrible in, it, in some of the finals he played this year. Variety completely gone, frustrated, ser- served horribly. Uh, and so I just wonder with him because he has that run at the French Open, he has the run in Paris. Those are both at home though. He had the home crowd behind him. You know, in the big moments on these random courts, you know, when he's playing Matt's Marine at, in a Challenger clay court final, you don't get that type of crowd behind you. You don't have that confidence from the crowd. And he's, you know, his arm got tight, and he put has put together some bad performances in finals. So I don't really know what to make of him. His, his touch is world-class. Um, his fight, his speed, his anticipation is all world-class. Um, he... Is such per, so precise with his grand strokes, but at the same time, that lack he can get hit off the court pretty easily by the ATP guys. When again, in the non-Paris situations, so I don't really know what to make. And he did have a running Gestad this year um, on ATP where he made the final, but. He's, you know, he's, I think he's going to be a player with these random peaks, but we don't, like I said with Musetti, where, but he's not going to be a mainstay, you know, you'll see him in the quarterfinals of, of uh, ATP events time and time again. Yeah, I, that's very well said. I, I think it's telling that, you know, again, with a guy whose game is so dependent on that variety and being an exceptional shot maker, having that drop shot land just over the net, that slice land just in that, you know, again, the depth or just at your feet where it makes life that much more difficult, the margin of error is that much thinner for him, match by right. match. And that's why I do think you see in the final when the pressure is raised, it just becomes that much more difficult for him to execute his game style. And it's not just, again, the margin of error a Korda has with his weapons and, you know, some, you know, the Zverevs of the world, the Tsitsipas's of the world have that's why that size is so valuable in the modern game but yeah just an incredible competitor and he's got the speed element he's got the feel element and so I do think this season that Paris run that was the perfect you know bridge for him at the end of the season and that's a lot of you know that's a nice cash of points to have at the back pocket so you probably get into all the grand slams this season into main draws not have to play qualifying that's huge for him as he did not play 
a main draw, or he did not win a main draw match at any of the Grand Slams this season and was only able to play the main draw at the French Open as he was given a wild card. I mean, that's big for him. And I think for him, sustaining top 100 is a successful year last year because there's a lot of challenger success built in this season. If he sustains that top 100 next year, it means he had some ATP level success. It means he took that next jump, made that next uh, strive. So he's one to watch. Last, but certainly not least, and I am going to do a take on him with Nina Pantic and a Great Shot podcast. I believe all of you listeners are going to be able to hear later today, and it's a podcast on what players who have yet to crack the top 100 on the men's and women's side are going to do so in 2022. The easiest answer to that question is Holger Rune. (laughs) And I will say this, David, as in as I am on Sebastian Baez, Holger Rune is going to make the top 50 next year. Here's just the numbers. Holger Rune is a former world junior number one since the start, you know, since the restart last season. So since August of 2020, we'll say. He has played, David, and this number to me is just mind-boggling how big this number has gone. But for Holger Rune, since the tour resumed in August, he has played 132 matches. Wow. He's 94 and 38. He's won 71% of his matches since the start of last August. Made 11 different finals, of course. You look for him overall, I believe six of them were at the uh, Futures level, five of them at the Challenger level. He's won his last four Challenger titles. And yes, he was gifted tons of main draw wild cards at the start of the season. But you look for him, works his way into the Mets main draw, makes quarterfinals at the end of the year, and you know works his way, qualifies into the U.S. Open, played a really fun match with no Novak Djokovic round one qualifies into Kitzbühel makes the round of 16 there in July started earning it more at the end of the season proved he belonged at that level and you look at the numbers hold percentage got up to 77.4 percent by the end of the year or excuse me got up to yeah uh 77.8 at the end of the year break percentage 30.6 percent when I look at his hold break ref- uh, differential, it reminds me a lot of Alcaraz. It reminds me a lot of Sinner, where it's just like the point construction is there. It's the serve itself that's falling behind. And when we talked about some of the first serve struggles with Musetti, with Baez, with Gaston, it's about their point construction. They don't have the easy plus one weapon that a guy like Alcaraz and Sinner do, and it's just about finding that plus one weapon more frequently. Rune's got the plus one weapon. I just... I think, yeah, the forehand backswing is a little bit big, but there's not a lot on a court he can't do. Absolutely, and I would say, yeah, for I, he was probably the biggest surprise for me this season. Um, I came into the year, you know, snarking about Al. You know, he thinks, you know, I, he thinks he's going to be number one in the world and more Tagli Academy, haha. Um, and he proved me wrong. Um, he did struggle at the beginning of the year with cramps. Um, it's still an ongoing, you know, we saw him at the U S open against Djokovic cramp. It used to be much worse though. And it seems like he's figured that situation out. Um, but yeah, I, I think Damien liked his forehand more. I like back in the day. I liked his backhand a little more, but they're both now really good. I agree. Um, So I am in your camp. The backhand to me was what first drew me to Holger's game, but that forehand is a weapon now. And in particular, his open stance, it's almost demonowery in the way that he hits it, but it's more effective. Like there's just more weight behind it, it feels like, and there's more pace on the ball. It's not as flat. He's so he, – he just takes every opportunity he can to rip the ball. And mm. 
can really force players on And much the- like Yannick Sinner, sorry to cut you off, but you know how when Yannick Sinner swings, there's not a doubt in your mind in the way Rafael Nadal swings where you're like, they swung that racket as hard as they could on every repetition they played. That's what you feel about Holger Rune as well. Definitely. We're just like, he's, yep, that's gun. Like, he's going gun, you know, gun, slot right, 22 on two. Like, that's his play. He's gunning it every time. Yeah, and he has a confidence, too, that, that yeah. he's going to – he has a swagger about him um, that I think is, you know, a short memory, too, in terms of the fact where he might make an error, but that next point he's winding up and he's going to he's gonna go for his shots and he's not going to let, you know, errors on previous shots stop him. Um, in terms of where he can improve, I think at times maybe his counter – like his ability to turn – defense into offense could uh probably be improved a little bit but i mean when i think about holger rooney's game there's not a lot of weaknesses there yeah i i agree with you the volleys get better as well and for the record holger rude going to be joining us on the cracked interviews podcast on saturday not sure if that episode's going to be released sunday or monday so that's something to be on the lookout for all of you listeners but I agree with you, and I can't wait to ask him just how does the body hold up over the course of 132 matches. And definitely ask him about the cramping and what he's done to uh, um, stop that because oh, it's no. really huge. Pro- he was cramping up in pretty much every match up right around when before he made his first challenger final, where he lost uh, Elias and uh, Oeris. I probably pronounced that, but do you remember that he was cramping up in just about every match? No, absolutely, and that's why again to see him play 132 matches it's like on the one hand the cramps are real on the other hand 132 matches in 15 months david like yeah come on now like, what are we doing here he admitted he was burnt out though oh uh, uh, true but deservedly so and like he's more pissed than anyone justifiably to have not ended the year in the top 100 and you look for holger rune by the points race holger rune i believe uh, a top 100 player you look for holger rune points accumulated on the year let's see for him rune uh 67th in terms of points accumulated so that is highway robbery and you can understand yeah. his anger he should be top 100 right now but he yeah, finished 67th oh, he is still, you know, well, his social media just a reminder holger rune carlos alcaraz both 18 18 and a half years old like yeah they're here the next gen is here and we talk about the depth when we look back at this class for the next gen field it's going to be Alcaraz it's going to be Corda and then I think honest to God we're going to be talking about Holger Rune as well and be like oh that was the year early that was the year before you know Alcaraz was a bit further than him at that point but then that next year you know Holger Rune played catch up I do think you have him third yeah, I'll, I, I no, I I might even have him on this list. Who ends up with the highest rankings? I would say Alcaraz one. I would say Rune two, and then Corda three. Okay, I would have Corda two, Rune three, Nakashima four. Yeah, I don't know where I'd go in terms of next year. In terms of the fu- uh, in terms of uh, just the future. Uh, yeah, that feels about right. I mean, again, I I would put Baez in that group, and then a cut. I would put you know Alcaraz. If we're throwing Rune in there, Rune, Korda in their own tier, then probably Nakashima, Baez, Musetti at the bottom of that tier, Surindolo right there, Gaston. Okay. I mean, yeah, I would make some adjustments, but yeah. yeah you're I, a little uh, higher on Surindolo. I know. I know. No, well, uh, I, would, yeah, I would probably have Gaston at the bottom. Yeah. Okay. Just, maybe not in terms of his top ranking, but in terms of where people will see him over time i just don't you know i gotta see more success in finals 
Again, I, I, I keep talking about with FAA, with Gaston, finals are important to me. They are a metric of where you are. They're a very important metric to me. So I know I keep harping on them across your various podcasts, but they're very important to me. Yeah, I would point out the Sloan study did a, a study, a Sloan uh, conference did a study on clutchness and is it a real thing? And across the board, the answer was mathematically no, it's not a real thing. Um, well, I don't worry about that math. I, I, worry, I worry about my own uh, subjective. Uh... Good, good. No, I was going to say, but that makes podcasting no fun. Um, so I agree with you. Although, yeah, again, we can save all those things. But all right, with all that said, any final thoughts before we wrap today's show? Uh, no, it's, this is like what I like. You know, I like talking about the ATP Challenger players. So for me, this is, you know, fun. No, again, this is the group that's best positioned to make another big jump forward in 2022. So no doubt we will keep our eyes on all of these, of course, as always. If you've missed any of our coverage here of the offseason, we really are hitting things across all levels. We had Colette Lewis on the mini break yet to break down her in the orange. So if you want to hear who the next, next, next gen could be, go check out that podcast. So, of course, if you would like to hear our coverage of the various levels of the tennis world, head on over to our website, CrackedRackets.com. Of course, again, we're covering the juniors with Colette Lewis, college level on our Cracked Interviews and Great Shot podcast feed at All Things Pro Tennis here on the Mini Break Podcast. Of course, you can find all of those podcasts again on the website, CrackedRackets.com. Like, rate, subscribe, review to them, as well as our Cracked Rackets YouTube channel to ensure that you don't miss out on any of our content. Of course, if you need the more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, we are at Cracked Rackets. You want to message me or David directly, I'm at Great Shot Pod. He's at all of our at Tennis Blogger One. Excuse me, a shout out as always to our super producers, Max Ligner and Daniel Westoff for the f- of an editing job they do day in day out shout out as well to our friends at tennis point remember it's tennis-point.com the promo code is cr15 with all of that said for my fantastic co-host david gertler our super producers fligner and Westoff, our friends at tennis point from all of us here at both crack rackets and the tennis channel podcast network i'm your host alex gruskin david what do we tell the people that's the break and we will see you all tomorrow <laughs> thank you as always my friend thank you